We are studying the book of Ephesians here these last uh, several weeks, and it's been a joy of our heart to do so. It's a, it's a book that is known as really the treasure house of grace, the storehouse of what it means to know Jesus Christ, to live for Him, and to have the mystery of the gospel revealed through His church. We've seen that Ephesians 1 is the the riches of our redemption, that God chose us in eternity past in Christ to know him as our Lord and Savior. That here this was accomplished through the Father's electing love and the Son's redeeming love and the Spirit's securing love and that Christ has been exalted above all things. He is the preeminent one. He is Lord and King of all. And as we come here to chapter 2 this morning again, we're going to be picking up in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, this morning, we began this great chapter a few weeks ago, and we took a break from it for our time to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ last, East, last Easter. The Lord is risen, hasn't he? He is risen indeed, and it's the only reason that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. If he was only sufficient for this life only, then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are to be the most pitied of all people because we have then just simply a dead remembrance of a profound teacher rather than the only living, true Lord and Savior of all that we serve wonderfully. And so this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, let's turn our hearts and minds to God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. The apostle says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made, both, made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As we begin in our text here this morning, I want to just give a word of praise to our, our Lord and Savior. It's a comforting thing, the gospel. It's a wonderful hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's no greater time that we rely on that is when we look into the open grave 
of another. And either we weep with no hope or we weep with tremendous hope. That's my heart this morning. My uh, precious mom, about 96 years, is now home with the Lord. And I so thank the Lord for that reality. She has seen the King. She's been praising Christ. We got the call a little after 10 o'clock on Friday evening. Mom had been struggling that day. They were able to give her some extra painkillers to help her with the suffering. My sister had left the home that she was in there, the retirement center, at about 8.30, and we got the call a little after 10. My mom had been praying for the last few years, at least two or three years, that she would say, Steve, I don't know why the Lord has left me here. Just please pray he takes me home. And she'd always wanted to go home, just falling asleep on her pillow and then waking up in glory. And the Lord blessed her with that. My heart immediately turns this morning as we are singing some of these great hymns. Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's a great verse, isn't it? A great promise. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And so this morning, if I struggle with some of these verses, you'll know why. I love my mom very much, and my dad, I was holding him when he went home to be with the Lord at age 17. I was a junior in high school when the Lord took him home, but my mom became both mother and father to us. And I want you to know she met the Lord at age 13, Franklin Logston, letter to Christ. And she lived faithfully without faltering for 83 years. Isn't that a great heritage? A tremendous blessing. I hope to be able to pass that on to, to my own kids. Faithfulness. Faithfulness, not successfulness, but faithfulness of life. It doesn't matter at the end of the day, how much money, how much fame, how much uh, notoriety, how many houses, how many cars, how many TVs, it doesn't matter. None of that things. You can gain the whole world, and if you lose your own soul, it's the worst investment. What does it profit anyone if that's their, their life? But what a wonderful joy we have to know that if you're rich in Christ, even though you may have nothing in this world, you are rich in eternity, and that's where our riches should be, should they not? And so this morning, my heart is sad, but I do not sorrow without hope. My mom is with the Lord. Someone on Facebook had sent me a private message, and they said to me, they said, Brother Steve, you know, your mom is looking down on you, and she's very proud of you, and so forth. And he was trying to be encouraging, but I sent him back a little reply and I said, listen, there are no holes in the floor of heaven, not one. It's a sentimental thing. I know we like to think our loved ones that have gone before us know what we're doing. They don't. They don't. You know why? They are with the Lord. They are with Jesus Christ. She is consumed 
with the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. She is giving praise and glory and worship with all the saints that have gone before. And so our comfort isn't, my comfort in this life isn't that my mom or my dad is looking down on me. My comfort is that the Lord is with me. And one day, though, heaven will be a tremendous reunion, won't it? When all the saints are gathered from the four corners of the earth and we get to praise and honor and worship him forever and ever with family, with the body of Christ, with dear friends that have gone before us. Until then, for me to live is Christ. For me, it's something personal for each of us this morning. To live, it's something practical, is Christ. It's something profound. It's something holy. It is something wonderful. And so this morning, we get to see the reason for our redemption in a profound way. And I want to draw your hearts and minds to this great text this morning. By way of review, the reason for our redemption, we've seen so far in this chapter three great truths three great realities. We see, first of all, that chapter 2 of Ephesians began with the reason for our redemption is that we are all sinners. By nature, we are sinners. You were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind who were by nature, notice that phrase, nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the reason for our redemption. We are sinful people. Mark it down, beloved. We are not sinners because we commit acts of sin. We are sinners because by nature we are sinful. We were conceived in sin by nature, children of wrath. But then secondly, our deliverance our deliverance, our salvation. Verse 4 begins with these wonderful words, but God. Isn't that good news? He didn't leave us in our sinfulness, but God, Paul says, being rich in mercy. He calls him the father of all mercies in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. The gospel came to us. And he says, it's by grace you've been saved. We were raised up with him. We were seated with him in the heavenly places. Notice that. He made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's our position. That's our reality. We make our way through this world, but yet we are still seated in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ. It's called the already but not yet. We're already there, but not yet so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then he gives the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's what it means to know him as your Lord and Savior, isn't it? By grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Think of it this way. God's grace is his unmerited favor through Christ to those of us who are deserving only of his curse. Let me say that again. God's grace, that's his unmerited favor, is given to us through Christ 
to those who are deserving of his curse. That's grace. That's grace. We're not worthy of it. We can't earn it. We can't do enough good works. It's a gift. We're by grace you've been saved through faith. And notice he says, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Listen, even the faith to believe is God's gracious gift to you. Jesus said in John chapter 3, that men always love the darkness rather than the light. That was my testimony. That's my life. If Jesus had left me alone to my sin, I would still love the darkness. But praise be to God, he came to me. He flooded my sinful heart with his grace. He showered me with his mercy, which is higher than the heavens are above the earth. And he's given me the faith to believe and to trust him as my Lord and Savior. He says, it's not a result of works so that no one can boast. None of us can boast here this morning that we weren't as sinful as our neighbor, that we were smarter than our neighbor, that we figured this thing out more than our neighbor. No, it is a gift of God. It is all of grace. And then he says, and we are his workmanship. This is our duty. We have a depravity, we sin. We have a deliverance, salvation. But now we have a duty, huge word, sanctification. It means to be set apart for his use. And so he says, we are his poemo, workmanship. It's the Greek word for poem. Uh, if you like to write poems or songs or different things, you keep a journal, you might have written a poem, a thought. And here he says, you are his living poems. You are his masterpiece. In other words, you're his workmanship. And you're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that word walk there simply means the, the habit of our lives, the habits of our lives. Are we demonstrating that we're new creations in Jesus Christ? Now, a few weeks ago, as we came to verses 11 and 12, we saw the fourth aspect here of the reason for our redemption, not just our depravity, not just our deliverance, not just our duty in living for him, but we have gone from disunity to community. Disunity to community. The dividing wall has been torn down, both between Jew and Gentile, and now we are one in Christ. This last section of Scripture, I've simply divided up into three sections for us. The alienation. The alienation. Notice this in verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what is called, pardon me, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. We'll stop there for just a moment. We're called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. The uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. Here, this is an amazing reality for us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul is saying here that this is something that we have been remembered to. He's reminding the Gentiles of their former life, of what it meant to live before they knew Jesus Christ. They were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. What does he mean by this? He's speaking about a racial divide. We see racism in our, in our culture today. 
But he's talking about the intensity of Jewish and Gentile racism. And the divide was not only horizontal but vertical. For Jews, beloved, circumcision, which had been given as a right that marked the people of God, marked Abraham in Genesis 17. If you recall, he received the promise in Genesis 12 when he was 76 years old. Uh, he then received the covenant in Genesis 15 when he was about 86, and then when he became 100, he received the sign of that covenant, a 24-year period from the promise to the covenant to the sign of the covenant. And that sign of the covenant was circumcision. It was the physical sign of the covenant with their Lord. It pointed to the particular and exclusive relationship which Israel had with the God of the covenant. And what was that promise? That Abraham would be the father of how many nations? Many nations. That this wasn't just a promise for the Jews. It was a promise for Jew and Gentile. From every tribe and tongue and language would come the people of God. Now, it's good to remember something. Abraham was not a Jew. Abraham was a pagan that came out of the land of Ur, the land of the, the moon god, the land of the worship there of the ziggurats, the temple worship that went on to the moon god. By the way, that's the god that was in uh, uh, the god for, for Ishmael and the god of, of uh, Islam, that here Allah was one of 360 stone, as it were, little idols in the Muhammad village of Quraysh, and that little god of Allah, that little stone idol, was known as the moon god. And this is where Muhammad got it. He took the name Allah. It doesn't mean the god of the Old Testament, but it means here the moon god. And no wonder on the flag of Islam they have that little crescent moon. It's tied. It goes back 4,000 years. Muhammad considers himself a direct descendant of Ishmael. And so here we saw that with Abraham, the father of many nations. And then in Genesis 15, his name was changed. In Genesis 17, the sign of the covenant. So appointed to the particular and exclusive relationship that Abraham was given as the father of many nations to the God of the covenant. The uncircumcision of Gentiles was evidence of their estrangement from God. That's what circumcision represented, or the uncircumcised Gentile. It was estrangement from God, and in Jewish eyes could only be dealt with if a Gentile became a proselyte to, to the Jewish faith. Paul had once taken pride in the fact that he was considered a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he was, according to Philippians 3, 5, circumcised on the eighth day. Paul's father was a Pharisee. Paul was one of 6,000 Pharisees in Israel at the time. He was also a Roman citizen, but he took pride in the fact that he was blameless according to the law, that he was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, that he was given a PhD, as it were, to matters of the study of the law of God, of the Torah, of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. He was a guardian and keeper of the law. He was a religious man. And he was an ardent proselytizer of Gentiles before his conversion. But since becoming a Christian, Paul knew that that circumcision was religiously irrelevant. Religiously irrelevant. Uh, would you turn with me just to two verses this morning? I don't have them marked up here. But would you go with me to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6? I just want to refresh your memory on this. 
Paul is calling back the circumcision. The circumcision. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, Beware of the dogs, the circumcision, who want to mutilate the flesh. But he says, We are the circumcision of the heart. And here he brings a katatome, the circumcision of the flesh. It means to mutilate or tear the flesh, versus the paratome, the circumcision of the heart. Here he describes this katatome, this trust in circumcision. Uh, I said Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, but notice here, beginning at verse 2, he says, Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of what? No advantage to you. It's a Jesus plus gospel. If you think mixing Jesus with religious works saves you, it makes Christ of no advantage. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You think keeping the law will bring you peace? Keeping the law will bring you forgiveness? Keeping God's law and acting out with religious works will somehow gain you favor and honor and holiness and grace and mercy before a holy God? You're mistaken. He says, if you think that's the way you get to glory, you've got to keep the entirety of the law. But we're told in James that if we break one part of the law, how much have we broken? All of it, even in action or word or desire. So he says at that point in verse 4, you are severed from Christ. It doesn't mean they lost their salvation. It means Christ is no benefit to you. You think you're saved through law keeping, then you're severed from Christ. You cannot mix a little Jesus and a little works and come out holy, come out saved. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified, that means to have a right standing before God. To be just means to have our sins pardoned and acquitted. But he says you can't be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Notice that. Listen, we love to say at our church, and it's on the front of your bulletin, grace alone, faith alone, because of Christ alone on the word alone, to the glory and praise of God alone. This is the great gospel. We are saved, again, by grace through faith in Christ. But if you think that religious works will save you, you've fallen from grace. You've fallen from grace. Again, it doesn't mean you lost your salvation. It means grace is irrelevant to you because you're still trying to earn your salvation. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Notice in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. So this is our great hope. This is our great operating work in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't trust in circumcision of the flesh. It's being circumcised in the heart. Circumcised in the heart. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. His description in Ephesians of the Gentiles' former position. He employs this Jewish language of religious law-keeping to refer to their outside status. They were outside the Jewish heritage. They were significantly qualified, indicating he was clearly not happy with a works righteousness. It's by the flesh. Notice that. It's made with human hands, nothing more. It's the most critical comment of circumcision, by the flesh. It's man trying to earn himself to God. And 
And again, beloved, there are only two kinds of religion in all the world. I don't care if it's Christianity, Buddhism, Mohammedism, Islam, uh, you know, all kinds of things. That here, there's only the religion of divine accomplishment and the religion of human achievement. Jesus Christ divinely accomplished for us what we in our flesh could not accomplish. And he's given that to us as an act of grace. All other faiths, whatever ism you want to put on the face value of them, all other isms are trying to work their way to heaven. And it's an effort in futility, isn't it? So here in the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets spoke of the true circumcision. I want you to see this just as a matter of background here. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 16. They were even concerned with this in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and in verse 16. Notice here what Moses says. He says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Because he says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Our God does not play politics with the truth. While you're in Deuteronomy, go to chapter 30 and in verse 6. Go to chapter 30 and verse 6. The Lord wants not the body mutilated. He wants the heart changed, a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, new life. It's what Jesus called being born again in John chapter 3. But notice this in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. And he says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, the promise of salvation for others, that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see, beloved, even the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, he says the same thing. Circumcise your hearts. Circumcise your hearts. Uh, go with me to one other passage in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12. It's the only time in all of Scripture that baptism and circumcision are mentioned in the same passage of Scripture. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, In him, that's Christ, also you were circumcised, and notice the language here, with a circumcision made without hands. He just told us in Ephesians that, that the Jews were saying that you are the uncircumcision, having a circumcision made with hands, made with the flesh. Here he says, You've been circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands. What is it? By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is that? The circumcision of the heart, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Man, what great hope. This is our life in the Lord Jesus Christ, the circumcision of Christ. It is now available to now both Gentile and Jew. The new order established in the gospel that here all things are made possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we saw this in verse 11. There was a circumcision 
There was something of a racial divide. There was something that by religious effort and law-keeping that the Jews were saying, it's okay if you believe in Jesus, but you've got to be circumcised first. If you believe that, there is no value of Christ. There is no advantage of Christ. The cross is made void. You've been severed from grace. You've been severed from Christ. You've fallen from grace. It must be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then also, let's go back now to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Here's part of our alienation. Not only circumcision, the racial divide, but here Paul outlines five deficiencies of these Gentile Christian readers for them being outside God's people of Israel and his saving purposes. Notice this in Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 12. He says, number one, first of all, remember you were at that time separated from Christ. Separated from Christ. Let's go to that next slide, please. Separated from Christ. Separate from Christ means the overarching programmatic expression which refers to all human existence outside the realm of salvation. He says for you Gentiles, at one time you were separated from Christ. You were outside of Jesus. You had no salvation. Remember the Jews prided themselves in religious works. The Greeks prided themselves in wisdom. And he says, at this time, you were separated from Christ. That's the overarching principle. Now he says in verse 12, there was four other reasons why they needed salvation, why the gospel came to the Gentile. Notice this. Number two, it says they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. To alienate means to estrange something. It means to be shut out from intimacy with someone, to have no fellowship. The Gentile was shut out from the commonwealth of Israel. No wonder Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel came to the Jew first, there's the commonwealth of Israel, and then to the Greek, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. He says you were not part of the citizenry of Israel. You were shut out, you were alienated, you were estranged, you were not intimate with the people of Israel. Number two, he says you were strangers to the covenants of promise. The covenants and the patriarchs that held out the promise of great blessings through Abraham, through Moses, through David, to all the nations of the earth. It was not until the coming of Christ that the open proclamation of the gospel that believing Gentiles could now be blessed along with Abraham as their father. In fact, Galatians chapter 3.29 says, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are now children or the offspring of Abraham. The seed of Abraham, the seed that Abraham was prophesied, the promise given to him in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, was not being the father of many nations in terms of having millions of offspring. The seed was singular, Paul says. It referred to Christ, and in Christ will there be salvation for the nations. This was the Abrahamic covenant. So here the plural covenant suggests a series of covenants, not only with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob, but with David in 2 Samuel 7, as well as Israel in general in Exodus 24. He says, not only, not only did you, not only were you alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, you were strangers, strangers to the covenants of promise, literally foreigners. 
You had no legal claim to it whatsoever. You were treated as an alien. You had violated, as it were, spiritual immigration policy, and you could not be considered part of the legal right of the promise. Covenants of promise, you were alienated from these things. And this leads to the fourth phrase, Paul says in verse 12, of those five deficiencies, he says, you had no hope. Think of that. Absolutely no hope. Cut off, no hope in this world. Paul's comment indicates that his readers were outside the sphere of God's covenant promises and therefore outside the sphere of God's people. They did not share in the hope given through the messianic promise of salvation, but here through Christ among him, it could only produce hope. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Good news, salvation has come to us as Gentiles, hasn't it? through Jesus Christ, through the messianic promise. And then he says, lastly, and without God in the world, in contrast to Israel, which had a relationship with the true God, Gentiles did not serve the true God. They were absolutely forsaken. That's what without God means here. So, beloved, at one time, Paul's describing our alienation. He says, before Jesus came, you were separated from Christ. You had no, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope, and you were without God in this world. You know, it's interesting to me when people see national tragedies happen, and the greatest one that has happened to our nation, we have to go back to 9-11, that tragedy where 3,000 souls were claimed as the result of terrorist activity and the bombing of the Twin Towers in New York City. And people all over the nation were praying. Everyone becomes religious when there's national tragedy. I remember getting that news in Nashville. And I was over having a Starbucks after taking the kiddos to school. And I remember that day vividly like it was yesterday and we were all huddled around a TV and we saw the live broadcast and we saw the planes crashing into the towers and people were weeping and rightly so. It was a horrific thing that happened in our nation, those precious families. And one person, one commentator on the TV said, listen, I would encourage the entire nation to begin praying. My only thought was, and I, I said it, aloud rather than quietly I said well who are you praying to one gentleman in front of me in line at Starbucks turned around he goes does it matter and I said yes it does if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and I say this with love in my heart you would be better off praying to my Starbucks mug this morning than trying to pray to the true God because there is no prayer heard by the living and true God unless you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, I know that sounds shocking to our ears this morning. It's an affront to our religious sensibilities. God doesn't hear the prayers of all people. No, he doesn't. He only hears, Proverbs tells us, the prayers of the righteous. And therefore, we come in prayer through Christ to the Father. It's the only prayer he hears. You might say, Steve, but does he hear any prayer of a non-believer? Yes, only one, and that's the prayer of repentance to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Otherwise, it means nothing before a holy God. The only prayer that he hears is those through Jesus Christ that are offered. 
That's how far our alienation goes. We were cut off without hope, without faith. We were without God in this world. But now the Lord has provided us a way to have hope in him. So let's go to our text here this morning as we continue on. Here we see disunity into community. Here we have not alienation, but here we have reconciliation. Oh, I love this. This is one of the sweetest words in all of Scripture. Here we have reconciliation. Notice this, this here with me, beloved, in verse 13. Again, but now. Similar to the language in verse 4, but God. But now. But now. In Christ Jesus you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the Gentiles. We were considered afar off. Again, cut off without hope, without God in the world, not having the covenants of promise, not having a lineage through the commonwealth of Israel. We were separated from Christ. But Paul says, good news, but now, in a phrase that's used many times in Ephesians, in Christ Jesus, you are now in Christ. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This language is borrowed specifically from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 57, and in verse 19, the prophet says this, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Good news to those who were far, to those who were near. Now the Lord says, in Christ I will heal them. This is what Paul is borrowing this language from. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy from Isaiah. He says, you have been brought near. Notice, by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. He's speaking here of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 14. In his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility was broken down. It's speaking of the crucifixion through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. He reconciled us in verse 16. In one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Here it is. It's the cross of our Lord. We just celebrated it this last week. Good Friday, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus saved us from sin, saved us from Satan, delivered us from death, but mostly he delivered us and saved us from himself because that's what hell is. It's the wrathful presence of God in hell for eternity being poured out upon those who reject the gospel. But in Christ Jesus, we were brought near by the blood of Christ. In verse 14 here, beloved, this is the key phrase of reconciliation. For he himself is our peace. Isn't that good? Hope in the gospel. It's not to a creed. It's not to a confession. It's not to a liturgy. It's not to religious works. It is to the person of Jesus Christ. He himself is our peace. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Seeing therefore that you've been justified by grace 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the peace. He is the peace. He is the foundation of our reconciliation. It's the blood of Christ. A sacrifice had to occur. Christ had to die for God. God had to be satisfied before I could be justified. And because God is satisfied in Jesus Christ, we now who are in Christ have peace with God forever. That's the hope of the gospel. Peace with God. But notice here, here's a... Not just a vertical peace with God, but here's a horizontal peace. Notice this. He says, who has made us both one. Who's he referring to? Jew and Gentile. Both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What an amazing phrase. What's that wall? What's the wall of hostility that separated Jew and Gentile, that separated the commonwealth of Israel and the future people of God in the Gentile faith? What is it? He says it in verse 15. He says, it's the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, we know the law of God, according to Paul in Romans, is holy, just, right, good, and true. So he's not speaking about the law of ordinances, meaning God's law that express God's character and God's will for men. No, what he's speaking about here is the rule of law being followed for salvation. But we know the law can't give forgiveness. The law can't forgive sin. The law can't give grace. The law can't issue faith. The law can only point out and reveal the sinfulness of our hearts. Paul said it in Romans 7, I wouldn't have known I was a covetous man unless the law said, thou shalt not covet. That's why when you're out in the streets and you're sharing the gospel with people, remember to share with them the law of God, the Ten Commandments. Remember to share that because the commandments bring the conviction of sin and the grace of the gospel then brings the balm of healing in Jesus Christ. We need both. People have to be convicted of sin and to repent of their sin and then to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. Here, this is what Paul is saying. Christ in him, his flesh became peace. Now he has taken that which was two and has made us both one. There is Jew, there is Gentile, but there's a third category here. It's the people of God in Christ Jesus. And he broke down that dividing wall of hostility. He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Katargeo. Katargeo is the Greek word here. It's a wonderful word. He abolished this law. It means to cause a person or a thing to have no further efficiency, to deprive it of its force, influence, or power. Isn't this good news? The law is no longer our judge. It has lost its power in Christ Jesus. He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And when we're in Christ, though the law of God comes against us, because we're in Christ Jesus, the law has lost its sting against our lives. We have peace with God. We're acceptable before God because Jesus Christ has abolished it. It, le it means to deprive of force, influence, or power and to have no further efficiency. By the way, this is the same word used in Hebrews 2 where it said that by death, Jesus Christ 
uh, came against Satan who had the power of death, that is the devil, and it said he abolished that death, he abolished Satan's power once for all, for all time. In other words, Satan has lost his efficacy in the life of, of a believer of Jesus Christ. He has no further influence. He's been deprived of its force and his power. That wicked serpent, his head was crushed on Calvary's hill. Praise be to God. Amen. This is our great hope. He is been defanged. He prowls around like a roaring lion, but yet he has no power. It literally means to treat something as absolutely inoperative or inactive. This is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has abolished the law of the commandments expressed in, ordinance, in ordinances. And for what reason? To create himself, he says, one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Colossians 1. In Christ, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, barbarian or Scythian, male nor female, but only Christ who is all and in all. Beloved, what is the cure for racism? What is the cure for religious racial, cultural divides with people. It's not seminars. It's not getting blacks and whites and orientals and Jews and Greeks together in a room and try to reason this thing out. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only cure. That is the only cure. New lives, new hearts in Christ. Therefore, all political solutions today fall short, don't they? Because a policy of government cannot change the sickness of the human heart, which is sinfulness. How do you deal with your prejudices, racial or religious? Come to the gospel. Come to the cross. Christ has made peace for us through the blood of his cross. There's the horizontal relationship. There's the horizontal relationship. That's why, beloved, racism should never be in the church, ever. Ever, we have a, one new man out of the two in Jesus Christ. Reconciliation. But notice here in verse 16, he's been dealing with the horizontal. Now he deals with the, with the vertical. He says in verse 15, and might reconcile us both to God. You see, the Jew needed to be reconciled to God. They couldn't find peace with God through laws. The Greek couldn't find peace with God through earthly wisdom. He says that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, that's Christ, and he preached peace to who were, here's that language again, afar off, and peace to those who were near. Both Jew and Gentile needed the gospel. No wonder Isaiah says, beautiful are the feet who bring good news. My wife told me when we first got married, she goes, honey, you have beautiful feet. I said, I do? I'd never have been told I have beautiful feet in my life. And she says, no, because you bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. Beautiful feet, bringing good news. My son Marshall has a street ministry. He goes out, he feeds the poor, he ministers to people, he leads people to Christ. Beautiful feet, son. Beautiful feet, going to a lost world, caring for those that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he came, he preached peace, peace with God, 
to be reconciled both to one holy God, those who were far off, those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. To have access here means to be brought near, to now have relationship with God, where now we are acceptable to him. We have the assurance, the blessed assurance that we now have favor before God. Notice it's Trinitarian. For through him, that's Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. One spirit to the Father. This is our peace. This is who we have. No more hostility. No more need for the ordinances to try to earn salvation through the Mosaic law, through feast days and sacrifices and Sabbaths. No, that dividing wall has been torn down. We are new in Jesus Christ. We now have been reconciled in Christ. That wall of hostility has been taken down. The hostility that we had before a holy God, that our carnal minds even were hostile to him, Romans 8 says, that here in the flesh we cannot please him, but he has made us alive in the spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, peace before God. We have access to him in one spirit. And so he says there, because of that, you're no longer strangers and aliens. What is he saying? Not only did we have alienation, not only do we have reconciliation, Again, that word to reconcile, it is a rich word. It means to those who were enemies now are back in the former state of harmony, of friendship. This is through the gospel. No longer under the wrath of God. No longer under the law, the, the law of God. No longer, no longer, beloved, under the judgment of God. We've been brought near, reconciled. We have peace with God forever. And because of that, unification. Unification. Notice this in verses 19 to 22 this morning. So then, Paul says, you're no longer strangers and aliens. This is wonderful language. Strangers. A, a, strangers meant not part of the ancient group, not foreigners, in other words. We had no rights or privileges. We have no legal claim, strangers to God, aliens, meaning non-citizens who were allowed to dwell in the city, but they had no customary privileges. Many people will think the friend of God. Many people will see themselves as someone who loves the Lord, but they're strangers, they're aliens. Paul says, because of Christ, we now have access to God. And he says, you are now fellow citizens, full protection, full rights in the heavenly cities with the saints. And notice this, members of the household of God. We've been brought into the same family. We're part of the same family now. We are the family of God. In Christ, we're reconciled. And we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This is not Old Testament prophets. These are the New Testament prophets, the apostles, through those who we have the word of God, through those, beloved, who we have the gospel of God, to whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so here we have this. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, the foundation of the gospel laid by the apostles and prophets. But now the whole structure 
being knitted together grows into a holy temple. Listen, we not only have a common faith and we're not only now part of a common nation, we are the Lord's temple. We are the Lord's temple. He uses these rich terms. We're being knit knit together in one dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That temple in Israel will never be rebuilt. We're not waiting for a rebuilt temple for Christ to return. Why is that? Because a rebuilt temple must mean reinstated sacrifices, and all the sacrifices are the shadow of things to to come. But Christ, according to Colossians 2, is the substance. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. John tells us in Revelation, our God and the Lord Jesus Christ are the temple. It's a new Jerusalem. It's a spiritual temple. It's the household of faith, his family. It's the foundation laid in 1 Corinthians 3. Christ alone is the foundation, but yet carried on by the apostles and prophets, the preaching of God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And therefore, we are living stones, according to 1 Peter 2, that are now built up into the household of faith, the temple of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, because of this, you're being knit and built together into a dwelling place by God, by the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful hope we have. It's through Christ's sacrificial death that he has brought us the great mercy and love of God and the grace of God so that we're no longer alienated, no longer strangers, no longer those that have no hope and cut off without God in this world. Christ is our peace, beloved. And he came and he preached peace for us so that together, both Jew and Gentile, in Christ, that we might have now him as our mediator of peace He's broken down the hostility. We have a new race, a third race, neither Jew nor Gentile, but Christians, Christians in him. That old law, that hostility wall was broken down. We now no longer serve a law of commandments and regulations trying to merit or deserve eternal life through the actions of law keeping, but we have now been made one in Christ Jesus. He's abolished the other. And Christ, who is all and in all, no more racial, religious, cultural, or social divides. In Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Good news, isn't it? Good news for us every day. And that's why this great book of Ephesians is the storehouse of grace. It is the ground of our reconciliation of Jesus Christ. And it's the proclamation of peace to both Jew and Gentile. The royal proclamation that the hostilities have ended, that through our great Lord and Savior, he is the peacemaker who provides access to the Father through one spirit for both Jew and Gentile. Beloved, if we got a hold of this, it would revolutionize how we do evangelism. Because no longer do we have to brow people browbeat people into the kingdom. No longer do we have to try to go out and win an argument or debate somebody and think that through clever debating skills or through skills of being a good apologist that we can argue somebody into the kingdom. Listen, they do not need your argument. They need Jesus Christ. 
They need the Savior. I remember a few years ago, two young men who are no longer in this particular church, that one has moved out of town, one is up north. But we had prayed for a, a dear man that we were witnessing to. He was part of the Wiccan cult. He involved himself in white witchcraft. And it took us several weeks, if not a few months, to invite him to come to church. His wife was struggling. She had wrestled with drugs as well as he did. They finally agreed to come to Sunday morning worship and it was a great service. We had a wonderful time celebrating Jesus Christ. I was so happy to see them here. Afterwards, as you know, we have fellowship time, and we're going to have that here in just a moment. I was outside talking to people, and my wife came running out, and she says, Steve, you need to get back in the sanctuary. Something good is not happening. And these two young men who had read maybe a paragraph of theology and thought they knew it all, we call them caged Calvinists, had cornered this young man that we had invited to church, never asked his name, never talked to him about his life, not, didn't welcome him, didn't say, hey, can we get together this week? I'd like to talk to you. Can I, can I buy you a dinner? Can I buy you a sandwich? Can we, have, can we have you over at our home? They were debating him on the doctrine of total depravity and divine election. He had never been to church in his life, and these two young guys thought it was up to them to argue him into the kingdom. It was tragic. No love shown. No grace. Are we to give a reason for the hope that's in us? Yeah, 1 Peter 3, 15. Give a reason for the hope that's in you. But he says it this way, with gentleness and with reverence. Gentleness to our fellow man, reverence to God and respect for them. There was no love in that. We, we spent a couple hours talking to them, trying to, trying to gain a little bit of confidence in that relationship with these dear people. Again, they did come to our house that night, and they spent two or three hours with us. He was shattered, this man. He was relating the call of Christ now to the unfortunateness of the two brazen individuals that thought it was their duty to throw stones at this person rather than to welcome them and to show them Jesus. Listen, if we ever get a hold of this, it transforms our evangelism. Christ has torn down the hostility, and we are to go to a lost world, beloved, not with rocks, not with clubs, but we are to go with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding our own depravity, that we were once dead in trespasses and sins, understand that if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would still be trapped in our sin. We are to go with the good news of the grace of God that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God's love was demonstrated for us at Calvary's tree. While we were sinners, and therefore, because we've been redeemed by grace through faith in Jesus, he's given us good works to do. And the good work is not to bludgeon somebody who's unsaved with the club of God's word. It's to go to them with the grace and the mercy and the love of Christ, calling them to repentance, but doing so with humility because we ourselves were once that way. So many times we forget what our life was like before we came to Jesus and we live in judgment of non-believers. You don't need to know that couple's name. They have since gone out of the area. I don't know if they've ever come to Christ. We tried to keep in touch with them, but the damage was done. People equate sometimes a rough, 
Brillo pad brazen attitude that Christians can have in trying to argue the truth and they come away puffed up with knowledge but they have left another non-believer crippled and still lost in their sins. We should not be this way, should we? The demeanor of the gospel is this. When Jesus came upon that adulterous woman, and we'll close with this this morning. When Jesus came upon that adulterous woman, he drew in the sand and he turned to those accusers and he said, let you without sin cast the first stone. He protected that sinner. He showed her grace. And we need to do that. We need to go to a lost world and give them Jesus, preach to them the grace and knowledge of the gospel. And at the same time, though, when, he, when those accusers left, he turned to the woman. He said, now go and sin no more. Repentance. Both are necessary. The gospel is not hard-edged legalism. It's not empty-headed sentimentality. It is grace and truth. Grace and truth. And beloved, we need to go to a lost world. He's given us the greatest joy to go to a lost world. I began with telling you about my mom's home going to the Lord, promoted to her heavenly home. I want to tell just one little quick story. I hope this will encourage especially the ladies here. When my dad died, we were wondering if my mom would ever remarry, and she says, no, I, I had my husband. He was wonderful. He's irreplaceable. I love that. She called me one day and she says, Steve, I, I know what I'm going to do in my older years. And I said, what's that? She goes, I'm going to hang around a courthouse. And I said, why are you going to do that? And she says, I invite women over to my coffee table, over to my kitchen table. That was her place of ministries. Ladies, if you're older here this morning, if you're elderly, invite some into your home this week. Invite another gal or two. Make your kitchen table an altar of ministry. She'd make them coffee. She could cook anything, great cook. She would feed them and talk to them about their lives. And one of the gals said, you know, I want to divorce my husband. I'm just tired of my marriage. I'm, I'm done. I'm out of here. She tried to plead with him. She went down to the courthouse and she met the judge ahead of time. And she said, Your Honor, you don't know me. I'm simply a mom. I'm a Christian in the area, but I have a burden for these young gals. And I kind of adopt them. I bring them into our home. And he says, what are, you, what are you asking? He says, Would you give me a whack at them before you pronounce divorce? And Ruth, she was given that leeway. Before they would grant divorce, they said, You've got to spend some time with this woman over here. Is that great? She would go and minister to those families. Several came to Christ. Several marriages were healed. She said, Steve, something that Vance Havner told me years ago, she goes, I never want to retire until God retires me. And even in that rest home where she spent her last days, when Cindy and I would call her, some of the kids would call her, one thing she would do at the end of every conversation, she would sing us a song. You could hear her sing on Christ, the solid rock I stand. She would sing little songs to us, reminding us of the joy and the life that we have in Jesus Christ. Yesterday, a band of brothers, we were in 2 Timothy 1, and, and those verses were hard to read because Paul tells a young Tim Timothy, he says, Timothy, 
I'm mindful of the, your faith that was passed down, and it was two people that passed it down, your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Godly women, you have a ministry to a generation of young men and women. It is a powerful thing you can do. Don't take it for granted. If your kids are grown up and out of the house, invite them over. Invite other kids over. Invite young ladies over. Pray for them. Pray for their kids. Minister the gospel to them. Don't retire. Until God retires you. And you hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the hope of the gospel this morning. It gives us hope beyond the grave. It brings blurred eyesight that we have sometimes with the things of this world and gives us 20-20 visions spiritually again so that we're not consumed with the things of this earth, but that our eyes are looking upward as Paul encourages us to seek the things, set your minds on things that are above. Oh Lord, we would ask this morning that you would eclipse all other things from our lives this morning that we could say with the hymn writer, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Lord, how wonderful and grateful your gospel is, your work is, that you did not leave us in the hostility of our carnal minds and the sinfulness of our human flesh, but you redeemed us through the grace of the gospel. It was your kindness that called us to repentance. It's your mercy, being the father of mercies, that flooded our sinful hearts with your provision for pardon, forgiveness of sin. Lord, we thank you for godly legacies, godly heritages, through moms and dads and uncles and aunts and even mentors and pastors and good friends and missionaries and people that will say, I want to walk with you and disciple you and deposit the gospel in you, the good thing, the treasure that's in us. Even though we're nothing but earth and clay jars, the treasure of the gospel lives in us now through Christ, in us the hope of glory, in us through Jesus. Lord, thank you that you fulfilled the law, and therefore it can no longer judge us and bring its judgmental, eternal, consequential, judgments on our lives because we're in Christ we've been satisfied in you on the cross Lord you were treated as if you lived our life so that by grace through faith in Jesus we could be treated as if we lived your life you've given us this ministry of reconciliation for he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him Lord, thank you that we who were afar off, the Gentile, been brought near, and those who were near, the Jew, with all the covenants of promise, have now been reconciled through one man, through Jesus Christ the righteous. And the blessing of the gospel is we get to take this to a lost world. Thank you, Father, for this hope. We love you. Use us for this end and to your glory. For it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.